This is Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn practical strategies to drive consistent and predictable growth. In this episode, I got to chat with Andres Glusman, the former chief strategy officer at Meetup and now CEO of Do What Works. You'll learn how to use a truth-finding framework in order to run more successful growth experiments, waste less time and money, and as a result, innovate and grow faster than your competition. We also talked about how this framework helps you hit your growth goals and how every person on your team can implement it, whether they're a VP or individual contributor. I hope you enjoy it. Andres, thank you so much for coming on Metrics and Chill. Uh, I am really, really excited. We had a pre-interview call, obviously, um, to about some of the topics we're going to chat about. You've got my interest peaked. We've never covered anything like this, so I'm excited. Thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. I've been excited to be on here. I love what you're doing. Awesome. Um, okay. So before we get into that, can you tell everyone I'm, I'm kind of blown away and interested as a marketer about your company, do what works. Can you give like the 30 second pitch for what it is, what kind of pains you solve and who is, you know, who's a good user of it? Yeah, sure. So do what works is a company that helps growth and marketing leaders do what works. We have a engine that uses a patent to technology that allows us to detect the experiments that are being run by any company. And then we make it super easy for our clients and customers to use that data to do things like use that with AI to write headline copy that's more likely to work on their ads or to optimize their website, identifying the parts of their experience that are suboptimal and what they can change and how in order to drive up the conversion rates in order to get more customers from the money they're spending, acquiring people, getting people to go to their website or through their ads. Yeah, it's it's amazing when when you and I were riffing on it, you know, in our in our pre-interview call. I think for you know for the benefit of listeners, one of the examples I chatted with you about was, it's really cool because a lot of what you'll hear, especially at SMBs, is like, well, we don't have like enough statistical data, like enough statistically relevant numbers. So if you want it for most companies, even if you're getting like. 5,000 uniques a month to the website. Like it's often not quite enough to make really like pivotal decisions. So you're able to be like, oh, we can see, you know, the Spotify like ran this type of like split test and they found this work. So let's just start with that, right? So you're getting to skip the line a little bit with some of these things and learn from some of these companies that maybe have bigger data sets than even, than even you do. That's exactly right. And look, we work with some of the largest companies on the planet. We work with six of the top streaming brands, like eight B2B SaaS unicorns they feel constrained by the amount of traffic they have. They, they wish it didn't take as long as <laughs> right? So for them, it's still taking uh, weeks, if not like a month at their traffic size to be able to run an experiment, which means that on any given page that they're working on, they get to, they get to maybe take 10, 12, 14 shots a year, you know, uh, on, that, on optimizing that experience. And that's not a whole lot for a company of that size. And of course, when you start getting into smaller and smaller companies, it gets even less, you have even less and less, fewer and fewer shots. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of the pain that I personally felt when I used to lead product and growth at Meetup. It's part, it's part of what inspired me to build this thing was very much feeling like, wait a minute, I can't run as many experiments as I want, not because it's hard to launch experiments, but because it just takes a while. Yeah. And then the crazy part about the other thing is that even when you do run experiments, surprisingly large number of them fail to move the needle. Mm. So I've got this, uh, you know, this thing I used to say, which is experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. <laughs> right? I like it. And in some regards, it's sort of like learning is what you get when you don't win uh, on your experiments. But our point of view is like, wait, what if 
you could learn from everyone else's experiments by seeing what they're doing and what worked and didn't. Is there a way that you can skip all of those tests that fail? And, and according to Optimizely, do you want to make this a guessing game, Jeremiah? Can you guess what percentage yeah, of experiments fail? Uh, according to Optimizely, what percentage of experiments move on their platform move the needle positively? Uh, let's see. So an experiment, would that be like anything from ad to homepage copy or something? Okay. Yeah, it's pretty uh, Yeah, this is... Well, I would have probably guessed different, but you but you set it up to be a low number. So let me, uh, I'm going to guess 7%. Okay, that's really low. It's actually better than that, which is good. Okay. <laughs> or to optimize, like, it's somewhere between 10 and 20% of okay. experiments uh, move the needle, which means, and according to convert.com, uh, I'm pretty sure they've put out there that 13% of experiments uh, move the needle, which means that anywhere between like one and five or one in seven experiments win which means that you're spending like the other four out of five, which is 80% of your time, sort of best case scenario, if you're looking like the industry on stuff that just doesn't matter. It doesn't move the needle. And so it gives you learning, but you know, wouldn't it be great if you could move that 20 to 30 or 20 to 40% and now you've doubled your win rate and now you're not wasting nine months a year on the stuff that's only giving you learning. You're, you're, you're using that time more productively to find the stuff that works. Yeah, it's almost like I can I can picture your homepage copy now. Like, learn from the thirteen percent that worked. Like, steal <laughs> steal the thirteen percent that worked. Um, yeah, it is. It's a cool product. I'm gonna go because I think it's cool. I'm just gonna skip to the you know. Pit. We normally tell people where to go find you at the end. So if you're interested in what we're in what we've been riffing on, go to dowhatworks.io and and check it out. And obviously follow uh, Andres on LinkedIn. Um, Okay, cool. So today, what I'm really excited about is we're going to be chatting uh, about this idea of that you call truth finding and get in, in this effort you make to get, I'm assuming use data to get as close to the truth as possible. And then there's a couple like miscellaneous topics you like flew out, like throughout that I'm, I like put down notes. I'm like, well, if we have time, I'm going to circle those too. So um, can, can you start here? Can you unpack what do you mean? What, so a, a B2B org is listening. And they hear you say your goal should be to get as close to the truth as possible. You want to do truth finding. What does that mean? Yeah. So truth finding is something that I'm really passionate about. And, and it goes back to that sort of 80% fail rate, right? Or, uh, and it's like, why is it that we only succeed one in five times, one in seven times? And this was my personal experience when I led product and growth at Meetup was that like as smart as I was, you know, and as good as I felt about what we were working on, we just kept finding over and over again that the things didn't work the way we expected them to, which is why we love running experiments, right? So what is what the reason why people um, don't get the outcomes they often want is because they probably made a fundamentally flawed assumption along the way about what people would respond to, what was important to users. And unfortunately, we all approach things as though users are like us. And the really like humble folks, the folks who sort of leverage scientific method understand, actually, I'm just making an assumption. And my job as a leader in that organization is to help my organization get as close to the best assumptions possible. What is the real truth there about what people actually want or the way in which you need to talk to them or what they respond to or where you need to talk to them or all those different things that we all now run experiments on. The reason we run experiments is to be able to get an approximation of the truth. And when you run a test and it does produce learning, which is wonderful, what is happening there is that you're quickly honing in on kind of what is the actual reality of the situation. And um, what we have is a certain number of days in a year, 365, 
And we have we, we get the opportunity to use those days to try and get as close to the truth as truth as possible before we sort of run out. Like, and hopefully we if we can get close enough, we get the results we want. If we don't get close, then obviously we're we're just learning. Uh, but that's not that's not the case. And so to me, what truth finding is all about is setting yourself up, setting up the way you work to allow you to be able to quickly get signal on where you want to invest your time based on what is actually likely to resonate or that your all end customers are likely to respond to, what is actually creating value for people that they're willing to pay for and keep paying for. And running experiments is part of that, qualitative research is part of that, running uh, usability sessions is part of that, service. There's so many different ways of triangulating in on that truth. And that's basically what great scientists do. <laughs> You know, and, and at best, we can basically learn from or, or use those methodologies to help us get the results we want by getting as close to the reality of the ground on the ground, which is ultimately what do people actually care about that we can deliver and solve for. Right. So what I'm hearing and tell me where I'm wrong on this. So uh, 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 this, is, this is the first time we're we've we uh, we were disciplined to not talk, not riff on this when I wanted to so that we, <laughs> I could unpack this on in the interview. So um so, you know, let's say I'm a B2B SaaS company in the next 365 days. Um, ideally I'd like to deliver more value to more of my best customers. So there's maybe for simple numbers, right? There's a thousand customers. If we're just starting out and we haven't super refined our ICP, maybe, you know, maybe only three to 400 are like real product market fit. Like they're like somewhere in there is like my best customer or like a certain use case they wanted, they came to get out of the product that the other 600 didn't come for and they get the most value. And then in the next year, I want to release some more features. I want to release some more products that bring more value to these people. I want to do more marketing that resonates with them and that quicker, more quickly connects them to the pain that we can solve for them. And I want to be targeting more of the right. So this is like this big ecosystem. Like all this is like a it's all these things going on in the life of a business. And this is like a multifaceted framework to triangulate faster in on like, how can we more quickly find, you know, the best customer and true, like understand the closest source of truth of what pains they're feeling, what they're looking to solve, what they need, what gaps we have in our product so that we can iterate faster, ship the right things that they're willing to pay for at the right price that they're willing to pay for. And what's the way in which we're going to go to market and communicate that in a way that most resonates so that we can continue to grow and make less mistakes. Is that like a fair That's summary? Right. That's right. But, and think of it like, like giant dominoes, you know, and, and essentially the first you sort of, need to like each domino knocks into the next and knocking one down creates the ability to kind of go after the next one, depending on the stage that you're in as a company in terms of where you are on your product life cycle, where you are on your company's journey, you know, the questions that you brought up uh, it, it are very, very important. For example, at the early stage, which is like, who is the customer you're targeting? Are they the right ones? At a certain point, you start to sort of like, once you can get validation that those are the right set of customers, you can sort of move on to the next set of questions, which is like, okay, well, do, does my point of view on their actual pain resonate? Is that actually what they care about? Or am I off base there? Does the solution I'm talking about make sense is sort of the next domino to fall. The next domino to fall is like, well, are they willing to, can I deliver it in a way that actually solves the solves for the pain? Can I deliver it in a way that is price efficient is sort of the next domino to fall. Is that price point uh, and the experience in and of itself, something that they're going to keep paying for on an ongoing basis. 
And so on and on and on it goes. And so, you know, our job as entrepreneurs and increasing as product leaders and growth leaders is sort of to identify which is the question that is the most important question up front, right? First, and what's the most important question at hand? And then what is the number one thing that has to break in my favor? What truth has to be true? What is it? What do I believe that has to be true in order for me to succeed right now? And once you ask and answer that question of yourself, then it's like all, I hate using war analogies, but I'm a strategist. All gun, all guns have to be pointed at that one source. All your laser beams have to be pointed at that one source to get maximum heat on that one component. And then uh, it's an order to knock it down. And your reward for finding that truth or getting as close to that truth as possible is that you get maybe a little bit of signal, a little bit of adoption, and that gives you the ability to work on the next problem down the chain. Got it. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the things I'm seeing is that's important about this. And uh, I want to get, I want to maybe jump to like an example, like walk through step-by-step step how, how we could do this, but I can see the importance of this because what I see a lot of times at companies um, for myself is like, you'll have silos of teams, each trying to do this in their own way. And there's this weird tension that can happen where like, oh, like marketing found this thing that they think is an unlock, but maybe like it drove really good leading it. Like, oh, they figured out a way to like increase conversion or get more signups, yeah, totally. but maybe they were getting the wrong fit people. And now product is seeing this tug of war thing of like, well, now churn is up or something like that. Right. So I can see how the, the value of this being like, when you say point, you know, all the laser beams in one direction, like a huge part of this seems like it would be getting the whole company unified around rowing in the same direction to answer a single question, or else it seems like what you could, like what I've often seen happens is like every department's trying to kind of like run independent experiments and grow, but they mm -hmm. might be doing this like tug of war thing, pulling each other in different directions. And there's like, it's tough to, to determine the signal out of the noise of, of everything that's going on. Absolutely. And usually when I talk about this or I think about this, it's very much from an entrepreneurial lens, but you're 100% right that as, as a larger company, you can almost think of it at that quarterly business review or at that time when you're creating that plan. If everyone were to align on the core question, which is what has to break in our favor in order for this to succeed, which at that stage, like with a marketing example, is we need to acquire a certain number of customers that need to convert at this rate and be able to generate, you know, uh, in this time frame and be able to generate this much revenue per. Right. And so as a team, you can collectively identify or hone in on uh, that individual question. But like, which of those assumptions is the most important fundamental truth that you need to unveil or reveal? And then the question becomes, what's the fastest way to reveal the truth about that core assumption? And the fastest way might be to, um, in this case, it might be to run the experiment. It might be literally to, to, to run tests, right? Or it might be to launch into a new marketing channel and spend $10,000 uh, over the course of X period of days to be able to learn quickly to see if the actual click-through rates are as good as you think they're gonna be and if they yield a certain it signal. If they do, that sort of gives you the permission to then keep moving down the chain to then be able to um, work on the next part of the problem, right? Uh, and, and so to me, what it ultimately becomes is like, when we plan, we need to acknowledge that we're just guessing, <laughs> right? And yeah. Uh, way in which we plan and the way in which we approach those guesses is if we sort of approach those with the humility and identify which of those guesses is the most important, we get data back as quickly as possible from whatever signal we possibly can that gives us the signal about that thing in order to then be able to um, believe very strongly that we want to keep investing or we're going to double down on it more. 
Like here's a funny okay. other example, for example. The signal that I'm talking about doesn't even have to be yours. Let's say you're launching a brand new product and you're like, this product is a lot like what this, uh, what this other company is doing. You could actually bring users into your office, for example, or get them on a Zoom call and you could do a usability session on that other product and watch people use this other, this product from a different company that isn't, maybe it's a competitor of yours or it's a company you admire to actually learn whether your assumptions about like how that works and what they feel about it is true. Right. Okay. And that would save you from building early prototypes. Like you're just using somebody else's stuff out there as the way of gaining signal as quickly as possible to give you the belief that, yeah, it's actually, let's go ahead and build out that early prototype. Let's go ahead and build that campaign. Let's build out this thing. Right. So it's like, how do you send, and this is a great example, like uh, Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, which is one of the most amazing books on strategy. It's sort of around firing bullets before cannons. And so when you fire a bullet and you fire it towards the, towards the analogy he uses, fire it towards a ship. If you fire a bullet and you hear like a little ping, ping, right? Then it's a signal, hey, the, the thing I'm shooting towards, there's something giving me noise that I can respond to, that I can shoot bigger things at. And that's when you want to then go ahead and invest in one big cannonball and fire that out of your, you know, fire that to actually make a big dent in the thing you're trying to try to achieve. Hey, just a quick interruption. In past episodes, you've heard guests give advice like the first step is just like actually measuring and monitoring, right? Which sounds very fundamental, but a lot of companies don't even do that, right? If you ask for like, hey, do you have a monthly kind of report of like what's happening in the funnel? It's like, oh, well, we have this over here and we have this over here and we have the traffic data and GA. So the first thing I think is like build out, you know, a presentation uh, that you're updating every single month. Or it's way easier if you have all this stuff being centralized somewhere and can look at it. And I promise that's completely unprompted. We try to book smart B2B leaders and learn how they're driving more predictable growth, and they end up sharing advice like that. And Databox makes it easy to do all of that and more. You can track your marketing, sales, revenue, and CS performance all in one place. It lets you build custom dashboards and view metrics from over 80 tools side by side. You can schedule PDF reports that automatically update your data in real time and send to your team or your clients. You can even set up custom Slack alerts that alert you when you hit your goals or when numbers spike or dip. If you want to try it totally free, just go to databox.com or click the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. These are okay. all very violent war-like analogies. But, but <laughs> I was going to yeah. say you're you're feeling violent today with the. <laughs> I'm feeling I'm feeling uh yeah it's 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 the curse of strategy which is that uh, <laughs> almost every analogy with strategy is is chess or war unfortunately. Yeah yeah yeah. Um, <laughs> okay so um let's so I'll try and I'll try and like bring this bring this to a specific example. So <laughs> let's say there's a B two B company. Um we'll we'll pick on B two B SaaS. And yep. let's skip, I guess, let's skip the early stage. Let's say, you know, they're, they're in year three to five, somewhere in there. So they're beginning, they kind of know who their best customer is. They've, you know, maybe got like the, the initial product off the ground. They've got some traction. Um, you know, it's, it's like end of Q4, like what, whenever this would begin, what would sort of be, how, how can they take what you're saying? And like, what, what are some practical steps they would take to roll this out? Like what, what does truth finding look like? Um, they're, you know, it's, it's uh, March 22nd, a B2B SaaS company, three years in is listening. What, what steps are they going to take to kind of roll this out across their organization or change their thinking? Yeah, so um, several fold, which is that they're, at that stage, they're probably um, 
faced with a core challenge of how do you drive uh, scale? Like, how do you get more scale uh, at that point? I'm assuming because they're three to five years in, so they probably have some semblance of product market fit, but the question comes around scale, for example. You can create a work of fiction that is called a model, a financial model. <laughs> and I like that financial that. model is, uh, is going to be filled with all kinds of cells that are the core assumptions around maybe the different channels that you might approach. We're going to do SEM. We're going to do LinkedIn ads. We're going to do events. We're going to do this, that, or the other. Um, and if those work really, really well, we expect to be able to get people to visit our website for, for X dollars, for, for $5 a, a visit, you know, a click uh, at this scale. And um, we, um, so if we can do those things, then you look at the bottom of that, you look at the bottom of the spreadsheet and look at all the different channels, how they add up. You're like, that looks great. We're going to achieve the growth targets we want. The real question though, is how do you turn those individual cells into reality? So the two things you want to do at that point is one, um, for each of those channels, you now know sort of what your end target needs to be like in terms of a couple key metrics. What is the cost per click that you need? What does the conversion rate need to be? What's the average order size need to be from those? You sort of have these three numbers in mind, for example. Right. Um, there's more cascading down, down, downstream. Um, now, before you go off and you spend $10 million, or you want to try and raise $10 million, there's sort of a question as to sort of um, what signal can I get as fast as possible that these channels with some optimization can get me into a range where I can deliver uh, on the where I can hit those specific targets because if I do, good things will happen. We just agree that good things will happen. And so the uh, strategy or the plan to create a marketing program from that point of view is sort of say, okay, um, over the course of the next six weeks or thirteen weeks, what we want to do is run experiments in every single one of these channels that are the areas that we've identified as the key key areas. We want to optimize. We want to run these channels and optimize our conversion rate on our website to be able to drive this many leads. It's currently X. We think we can get it to Y eventually. Uh, the answer, though, is sort of what's the midpoint? If you can get it sorted to like 40% more, 30% more than what you ultimately want in some period of time, it says like, look, right now we're going to get to a spot. We're going to be within the range. And from there, we can optimize it down. And so any experiment that we run, all these different channels that we're trying, maybe new SDRs, maybe email, maybe a direct, uh, direct uh, to, to uh, yeah, LinkedIn, SEM, et cetera, uh, we'll get the data back. They're going to give us basically what's going to be within 40% or 30% of our target range. And that's going to give us the confidence that we can move forward. And when you do that, what's really going to happen is that some of those channels are going to be nowhere close. And some of those are going to be pretty much on target. And then you're going to hone in on the ultimate truth that the market is revealing to you, which is that these channels actually do bear a chance of, 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 uh, Giving, getting me within striking distance of that goal. And now I want to invest all my resources for the remainder of the nine months that follow for the rest of the year on making sure that these two or three most promising channels are the areas that are going to produce the most, that, that I'm going to focus all my efforts on, all my resources on. That's what I'm going to think about day in, day out. I'm going to have the team focus on that uh, because if we can get to that spot, then we ultimately will reach the target. Does, does that help? I and think so. so. Yeah. So the ultimate truth here is, is basically whether or not like these channels that you believed up front are, are likely to work, which of those are actually truthfully likely to make, make a difference? Mm. Which of those can you actually hit these numbers on? What is the reality of the actual conversion rates and cost per clicks and, and various other numbers? Once you get that data back and you get it back as fast as you possibly can, um, that gives you the confidence to spend multiple times that $10 million, you know, 10X that, 
hundred times that uh, to be able to Jen uh, go after um, go after those channels with a lot more um, vigor and a lot more risk taking because you've already sort of de-risked because you're close enough to the ultimate truth, which is sort of what is the reality of what it actually costs to get a visitor to my site? What is the real conversion rate? What is the real average order size? Got it. So at a high level, is it fair to say like for, for someone thinking about this, the like 30,000 foot view is like, pick the next big problem you need to focus on. Like, so, okay, for this company, it was, uh, it was scale for another one. It might be validating our, you know, our target audience, or it might be finding our ICP, or it might be for one that's growing and they're trying to, to move into a new category. It might be validating a new product that we're rolling out or something. So you, the leadership team takes their next big problem. And then the second step is they say, what needs to be true in order to arrive at this? What do we, what do we think we need to see? So like we, so you form a hypothesis, which is fiction right now. Like you can call it a plan all you want, but it may or may not come true. And this is where I I like this because I think, you know, we've, we've had a few guests on the show that have said like, yeah, these like financial models or growth models, like we'd go year after year after year and we'd find like, well, we either exceeded or didn't hit them and we never knew why. So what I like about this, I like the, the analogy of like, you know, shooting out and listening for a ping of hitting the ship. So you, you pick your big problem that you're focusing on scale validation, ICP, something, then you come up with the fic with the narrative. You say, okay, well, we think it's this and here's why we think we can get to this revenue number. We think we can get to this many users. We think our ICP is this people because of, of da, 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 da. And then, and then the difference, it sounds like the real key here that a lot of companies might be missing is you deploy all your leadership teams focus on like, and, and guiding your, your, the team members that you're managing on what are the experiments we can run to validate this hypothesis as fast as possible and either prove it true, in which case it gives us two X confidence to invest in this and go down this road for a quarter or like it's going to show that we maybe we're wrong and we need to come back and like re-question this hypothesis and test another one. That's exactly right. And the ultimate um, thing to keep in mind when you're doing that, which you've described so beautifully, that's exactly right, is that the experiment doesn't need to be capital E experiment. It doesn't need to be the kind of experiment that is a, is a drug trial. Uh, it's about sort of Boy, stack- like that analogy. Stacking up signals because, you know, you're not putting medicine in people's body. You're not trying to land a human being on the moon. Um, you're trying to get signals that it's actually a good use of your time versus a bad use of your time. And if you're constantly sort of course correcting off the signal, then you don't need to run a uh, an experiment that would make your biology professor from high school proud. You know, you just need to run a, an experiment that gives you better odds than the than eighty percent fail rate. You need it. You need to do better than eighty percent fail rate in order to be able to sort of like get closer or be able to win more often. And so if you pick up signal wherever you can, and that signal might be from running an experiment yourself, sometimes if you're of a certain scale, that's exactly what you should do. Or at a certain point, it's the best way to validate. But there are times when the signal before that is, is maybe just a conversation, you know, with, with, with 20 users uh, and having the real conversations with them. Maybe it's around usability sessions. Maybe it's about uh, understanding uh, what worked for a peer of yours in a different industry. And kind of borrowing that, be like, oh, that is a good lever. That is a that is similar enough to what problem I'm working on uh, that it might work for me. And so it's sort of around sort of stacking those up. And the more you stack those up, there's like votes in favor versus votes against. And ultimately, okay. you're sort of 
like the more votes in favor you have and the more you weight them because they're closer and closer to your reality, the more likely you are to win. And ultimately winning is about sort of getting the result you want or influencing the end user behavior to be to do the thing that you, that you were hoping they would do. Got it. Okay. No, that's, I love the, I love the analogy of like the drug trial. Yeah. Like taking a year, you know, a, a year to five years to come to fruition and everything's like perfect versus like these little indicators when, I mean, I know it's different on, it's different probably depending on every uh, problem that they're trying to solve and hypothesis that they're trying to test. But it, do you have some general guidance around when a, when there's enough kind of votes in favor or like confirmations of hypo, like when, in other words, it seems like with the example of the ads analogy, that would almost be enough, right? Like that's pretty mathematical. We know like we we're getting 40% there and we're six weeks in. So at 12 weeks in, we can expect that we're going to be at our target. That's enough to invest $10 million and, and we're going to hopefully hit those things exactly. for something a little bit more nuanced. Like let's say, you know, a SaaS company, the same SaaS companies uh, rolling out a new product it's like maybe they ran one, their initial test was they got on the phone with 20 of their best customer. Uh, the people that have retained the longest paid the most money. And these people have all said, yes, we articulate this pain. This sounds good. That may not be enough to like invest six months of, of dev time, right? So how, do, what would that look like for them? How, how do you know kind of when you've got enough uh, yeses over no's? You know, like how do you know when there's enough signal to kind of like make the bet and proceed? Or are you kind of always it's a crude example, but like, are you kind of always like a bat just shooting out sonar, like always and always looking for signal? Like, cause it seems like there has to be a point where you're just kind of making a commitment and going, like you're going to decide to ship the thing. Right. So. Totally. Um, it's, it's such a wonderful question. I guess the question is sort of what is the ultimate uh, risk or what's, and what's sort of, what are those gates that you have to clear where there's a lot of pain and, and so, uh, or a large downside scenario. I went to, um, you know, I, I went to business school and what do they teach people in business schools? They sort of teach them how to think about whether or not you want to build a factory, you know, in another continent and it's going to take 10 years to build. And so you have to do a lot of upfront analysis and make a lot of guesses upfront because there's just a huge cost. Uh, in our industry, you know, in the industry that we get to play in, in technology, B2B SaaS, in, in, uh, in marketing and growth, um, there's the many, many stages before you get to that point, there's a lot of sort of fine tuning that you have. And so the way the framework that I would think about it is sort of what is the downside risk of any given decision relative to the speed with which you can move. And so if you can get truth faster and sort of hone in on the right signal by sort of bouncing up and down and bouncing up and down and sort of honing in on the right spot, um, you want to course correct for as long as you possibly can. But at a certain point, you got to push your chips in, right? You got to like, no, am I going to spend the $20 million this month, this, this year, because the market dynamics are such that if we don't move now, we're, we're, we're going to lose out on this market or, right. um, you know, at a certain point, it's like, we got a lot of really good signal about this product. You're not going to stop and like put your head down and, and like build it for, for a year. I would hope, you know, you're probably going to build part of the build it and release it in a way that keeps validating that you're onto something. Like when we launched a new product right now, we're, uh, we, we basically, um, we sort of launched the most essential part of it. So right now we're launching a new AI generator, right? We're using AI to, to write copy. And, and so the way we got there though, was to start by saying, well, let's understand how people optimize their ad campaigns and start by understanding, okay, what are the problems with their ad campaigns? We're like, oh my goodness, we didn't even realize this, but it's really hard to get visibility into your own 
how your own ads are performing in, in, in search ads, for example. And then it's like, well, that's cool. But now I want to know, like, it's it's kind of a pain in the neck to write all these ads. So it's really, we release the next feature one step at a time and in increments as, as much as we possibly can so that we're building with them and validating or honing in and not wasting time. Because Jeremiah, I've been on the other side. I've, I've launched a brand new product before in stealth, quote unquote, stealth. Yeah. Uh, was part of an early team that blew through $6 million with zero to show for it. I was, wow. I was in my early 20s um, and uh, it was like a lesson in all the things not to do because it sort of was the big reveal. Um, and, and I guess part of my, 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 my thought in terms of not bringing that up is that you'd be surprised by how often you don't need to have a big reveal uh, and how much you can uh, keep gaining signal that keeps validating uh, that this is in fact a good idea or maybe um, gives you the does not give you signal that it's a bad idea is probably the better way of looking. Keep looking for signals that this is a bad idea. <laughs> and in the absence of that, uh, be able to move forward with confidence, knowing that it's probably right. You're not getting confirmation bias. Uh, to be able to hone in on the ultimate thing that's more likely to, um, that, that it's worth continuing to make that investment. To your question though, like right before that point of investment um, is if you need to make a big investment or if there's a very big consequence for being wrong, that's when we slow down. That's when we want to get more, more precise. That's when you want to have more data. Uh, but more often than not, the consequences are not as extreme as you would think. And so you're more able to move more quickly than you realize because the downside risk is really not that extreme in, mm. in more cases than people would realize. Okay. Okay. Um, and you kind of, you started to go here. So this is per, cause I was going to ask this question and, and you went there with, with, with the last example of the 6 million spend. Yeah. Um, that, that's like a, that's maybe like an extreme example, but when I think like, this is striking me as, as a, as like, um, almost more of a philosophy that a company needs to adopt. Like this seems like a mindset or a way of thinking that yeah. it would influence everything they do. Like this isn't, you know, a lot of times we're talking about like a goal setting framework that the CEO uses or, you know, some team dependent thing. This seems like a philosophy you would want to instill in all of your leaders. Like you'd want your marketing leader testing campaigns this way. You'd want to bring your leaders together at the beginning of the year when you project your growth to like go through this together. You would want, you know, even like the social manager running ads on LinkedIn, like you'd want them to think this way. So I have two questions. The first is, and this is where you started to go. What is like, you've painted a really, I think, beautiful picture of what a company that adopts this way of thinking, this data informed kind of constantly looking for signals and make sure we're going the right direction. Like I just keep picturing this, like this bat that's like sending sonar to bounce off and like navigate through the trees, to like head the right way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, what does it, what does it look like when companies don't do this in your opinion? Like what, like what, what does a company look like that's doing this like versus not? What are some of the telltale signs of, is it like, yeah, they're shipping products they find nobody wants way too late in the game or wasting tons of ad spend? Like what are some, what are some chronic symptoms of people that are not implementing this framework? Yeah. Um, I've been in those organizations uh, before and, and um, the end result is exactly what you described, which is kind of a lot of wasted cycles, a lot of wasted money, a lot of wasted spending uh, on, on things. Um, the question where like the argument that you usually hear is sort of like, why would you not want to do this? <laughs> what would be the good right. argument against not doing this? If this works so well, why don't people do this? What's the argument against? And the argument that usually people make against is that it creates um, 
timid thinking. It's sort of a little bit too, like it takes a while to sort of hone in on the thing. It causes you to not take big swings. And oftentimes you'll hear things like, well, we need to be really bold. And you're only going to create bold breakthrough innovations by doing X, Y, and Z, by just like committing to something and launching it. Uh, and that, you know, could work one in a thousand times. And so you'll hear people, you, I'm sure you can go on YouTube or go on podcasts and hear people tell their stories of how they did that bold, innovative thing. Uh, but it's really hard. You don't hear about the 999 stories of the people yeah. who tried that and, and it didn't work out. Um, you know, but but the problem with that point of view where you know you're in an organization like that when you're sort of hearing people say, no, we don't want to be timid. We need to be bolder. We need to think bigger. Um, and those bigger things are still predicated on assumptions about what actually like how the world works and what people want. And there's ways of achieving or getting signal about that as early as possible. And so it's sort of just a lack of creativity ultimately around how to approach the problem. But from a framework point of view, and I've been in the situation before too, because when I first started getting excited about this, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, I was like a zealot uh, that just found that just found out about this thing, uh, which was experimentation and the lean methodology. I tried to go change how everybody thought. I tried to go to my organization and be like, okay, guys, what we're doing, it's not, it, we shouldn't think this way. We should think this other way. And boy, do people not like being told how to think. <laughs> they, do, they do not like that at all. Like being told what to do is almost as bad as being told what, like how to think or what to think. And so what ultimately what I learned is that you got to like connect the dots for people and show them the path and make it very pragmatic and very practical. And that when you start dramatically improving your win rate because you're using methodology that works, then other people are like, oh, what are you doing? I want some of that. The framework and to your point, what I would really encourage people to steal if they're going to steal one thing from this call, from this, uh, from this podcast today is to steal the question, what has to break in your favor in order for this to work? What's the number one thing? And then the follow-up question is, what are you doing to make sure that it steers in your favor? Like, what do you know about it? What are you doing in, in, uh, about that one thing? And it's true at the highest of levels. It's true at like in, the mar in a marketing team. It's true for a marketing manager. It's true for uh, an SEM, you know, market, an SEM uh, campaign manager too. Like no matter what scope you're working on, there's one or two things that have to break in your favor in order for you to be successful, almost always. And right. you ask that question to people and then say, okay, well, what's the number one assumptions that you're making about those? And how do you know those are true? How can you as quickly as possible know that those things that you're, you believe to be true are actually true? Those people's success rates at whatever job they're doing will dramatically go up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's such a simple... It's such a simple question, but as you're saying it, I'm thinking like, yeah, you can kind of keep asking it like in perpetuity, right? Like you would say, what needs it. to be true? Like, like you could start at the very highest level. Like we want to grow by X percent this year. Well, what needs to be true for that to happen? Like, well, we need to get this many signups or we need to drive this much pipeline. Okay. Uh, you know, is that possible? Right. And you like validate that area. Then you're like, well, now each team, how are like sales, marketing, whatever, how are you customer success? How are you going to contribute to getting that done? Okay. We have these things. Okay. You're betting those things will happen. How, how do you know that? Like go validate that. So yeah, it's like this trickle. It feels like it's endlessly usable as a, as a two question uh, framework that trickles down to every department to, as a check and balance system to make sure that you have, it's like, to me, I don't, I guess I could see what people mean 
when they're like criticizing it for timid, but um, I feel like I was talking with someone, you know, a prior guest and they were articulating like the, they were giving the example of how like um, there's the adage of, I think it's attributed to uh, Henry Ford of if I would have asked people what they wanted, it would have been a, a faster horse. It's like mm-hmm. my, my opinion, I, I wrote this up and I think put it on our newsletter recently. It's like, yes, like there is like the iPhones and the automobiles like of the world that maybe like they needed to just take some big swings and execute in their head. But it's like, what is the likelihood that like most people in the world are building the next iPhone or whatever? Like really well, probably not. You're just shipping another feature, you know, totally. like your stuff doesn't like, like you said, for every one iPhone where like maybe very few people were consulted or like whatever about it. And it was just like a big, bold swing with low signal. And yeah. I, I mean, even that's yeah. questionable. Uh, there's 999 other companies that like are not building the iPhone and should definitely validate and get some signal before they build. Totally. But take your Henry Ford example, right? Um, Henry Ford did not invent the automobile. What made Henry Ford successful? What was the number one thing that Henry Ford did to make him success, to make Ford successful is they invented a process by which they can produce automobiles that allowed them to sell it cheaper. And there's an assumption, do people want this thing that other people are buying at for a lot less money? Yes. And, and so it's not like he, they invented the automobile. They just right. invented how to get it out, how to make it at scale. And what is it that ultimately sort of like dethroned Ford? Why did GM come along? Is because they actually sort of figured out how to carve up the market to give people more of what they wanted. So when scale, like when the ability to mass produce no longer became a competitive advantage, Understanding what people wanted would have been the thing that could have kept Ford from inviting, mm. from letting GM in the door. And they didn't. And that's why GM exists today, <laughs> in part, is because GM did a much better job of understanding uh, how to deliver against the needs of automobile enthusiasts at the time, which now we're going on is almost 100 years ago uh, from today, right? So uh, I love that example, in part, because it's sort of you have to understand what you're innovating on and what is the actual assumption. And all, not all, I'm sure there's many other things that Henry Ford did, but it was just about being able to produce at scale, which, of course, you don't need to ask them what they want, which is like, do you want a cheaper car? It's like Jeff Bezos says, do do people want uh, more selection? Do they want it faster? And do they want it cheaper? Right. Obviously, yeah. There's there's a million sub assumptions related to that too, but but that's generally the way it works. Yeah, so I love that example, and I think it actually reinforces it, it reinforces what I'm getting at there, uh, which is you got to hone in and understand the number one thing that's breaking your favor. In Henry Ford's case, is about mass production, being able to generate cars that are high quality at a lower cost. Right. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. To your point, like even that, like no matter how, like the biggest. I guess in my example, like the biggest, most secret ideas that people could possibly use against this idea as like, well, look at these big swings they took and couldn't consult anyone. He's still like, there was probably hundreds of signals that they looked for to validate internally. Can we, this is assuming we can build this many cars a day. Can we actually, what does this look like? And, and all those things. So yeah, getting, getting like constant signals every step of the way. Um, all right. Well, we're coming to the top of the hour. You mentioned something. I wanted to see if we can tie it in here uh, naturally on, on our on our other call, um, where do you think the, oh man, I want to ask this other one too. All right. We'll see if we can sneak in too. I'll um, talk about New Yorker. I'll talk fast. All right, cool. Um, well, so we'll wrap up with these two ones. Um, can you unpack your thinking on being data informed versus data driven as it relates to this framework? I, the way I've heard it, like, uh, sort of 
blanketed was data driven is like, we only make decisions when there's data to prove it. And data informed is like, we're going to use some combo of gut and like data is going to validate the way that we're headed, but there's going to be some level of like gut or artistry or hypot, like, you know, creativity involved. How do you think about the difference of those two? Is there like a better or worse one or how does it roll into this framework? Definitely. Um, so for, for data informed versus data driven, there's a good friend of mine, Eric Reese, who's the, the, the founder of the lean startup movement. He's, he's now an investor in my company too. Um, but he's got this great expression that I'd love that I'm going to, I'm going to quote, which is that you want to work on behalf of your customers, not at their request. And so when you're working at their request, if you're data driven, it's almost like when you see people uh, get requests from customers and then just blindly add those things into the product and add them as feature and feature and feature. And then you end up with this just like mishmash of weird features and a very complex product because they're sort of delivering against what people ask for, but it's not actually producing a, a like a cohesive, thoughtful experience yeah. that's delivering on the thing they're trying to accomplish. And so there's a difference between what people are asking for and what they're trying to accomplish. And in some regards, being data-driven versus data-informed, data-driven, data gives you the signal about what is it that people are trying to solve for. The data could be, please build this feature. <laughs> but maybe what they're not trying to, they're not trying to upload something more easily. Maybe they're just trying to, maybe not having, maybe just having an integration in general is the better way of doing it, right? And sort of like you can cut out five steps as opposed to making steps two, three, and four better. That's sort of, that's the difference between being data-driven and data-informed. So you're not responding blindly to the signals that you're getting. You're processing the signals in terms of what somebody's trying to accomplish to then deliver an outcome against the outcome to create a cohesive experience. Um, and it's so hard. That's the art of what we do. That's why it's beautiful. Beautiful thing to do is basically um, getting to use the left, left side and the right side of your brain to not just like gather the signal and act right away, but to process it further to understand sort of what's the larger picture of what they're trying to do. Yeah, I've heard Jason Fried talk about this. Uh, he was asked like, you know, how they think about product additions or features at Basecamp. And he was saying, we never like just implement an idea. It's He said, he'll he'll often reply back and say, don't like, he said, whenever someone floats out, like, please, can we add this? He'll, he'll re reply back and be like, what were you trying to solve? Like, what's the problem you're trying to get at? And then it'd be like, you think the solution's this, but maybe like we have another idea or another way that we could solve it that is more cohesive. That's exactly right. And that's why designers rule the world, in my opinion. Or that's why designers, you, you, like you need amazing designers on your, uh, on your product team, because that's exactly the question that they should be posing and that you want to be asking and answering. Awesome. All right, last one. This is the one I had to sneak in. Um, uh, we've, yeah, we've talked. I mean, yeah, you've provided the framework that answers this question, but I just love the way you framed it. Um, you said it's never been easier to ship products and yet never harder to ship the right products. So in your mind, I guess, explain that, like un unpack that a little bit. And then is this framework a solution for that or to help you to help guide against that? Totally. So, you know, when I got started in this industry, many, you know, in the late nineties, if you wanted to build something, you needed a massive organization to be able to get to be able to buy the servers and you needed to raise money just to like do the basics. Um, it has never been easier now with no code software, with various off the shelf technologies to be able to put together solutions for people um, from your from your living room, really. Right. Like it's kind of unheard of how easy it is to ship stuff now. Um, and thanks to the methodologies, thanks to all the tools and AWS, it's just like low cost and fast. 
Mm. The reality though, is that it's easy to get it out there, but it's, it's never been harder to ship stuff that people actually use because there's so much noise. There's so many different solutions competing for your attention. There's so many people trying to get in front of, uh, you know, trying to get uh, people to do things that it's really, really, really hard to strike a nerve. And if you can gather just a little bit of attention, if you're fortunate to get a little bit of attention, how do you make sure like the, the, the problem, unfortunately, is that we all make so many false assumptions. We're terrible at actually knowing what people want. Um, and we need to ask the questions of them or we need to gather signal about what they're responding to or not responding to so that uh, when we are granted just the, the, the nugget of attention that we're uh, using it in a way that actually delivers back on something that's likely to touch on what they want. Um, so it's just like so much noise, so much chaos in the world. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's worse than it was 10 years ago. And it, in 10 years from now, it's going to be like 10 times worse too. Uh, and, and so it's really sort of all about like kind of honing in on the things that maximize, like that actually solve the right problem um, by virtue of gathering signal in the cheapest, fastest possible way forward, which could be anything like, which, which are many of the techniques we talked about today. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, Andres, this has been amazing. This has been a super fun conversation. Thank you for sharing everything. Um, other than your company website and LinkedIn, is there anywhere else people should go to follow you to kind of continue learning from you? Well, LinkedIn is, uh, so my company website's great. LinkedIn, we uh, we like posting stuff on there. We post games and things every now and then and share learning there as well. Um, if people want to get a hold of me too, they can just email me, andres at dowhatworks.io. Uh, they can get a hold of me there as well. Okay. Awesome. Thank you again for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.